0: June the 9th, in the 1,874th year of our Lord, this court is now in session. Elizabeth Jack, born Elizabeth Zimmerman, and husband John Jack versus William H. Faust. Mr. Faust, attorney at law, acting on behalf of Jemima Zimmerman, the deceased and late daughter of of Solomon Bolton and Rachel Davis, also deceased spouse of Jerome Zimmerman and deceased mother of Martha Zimmerman. Counsel for the plaintiff may approach the bar and call first witness. Thanking you, Judge Your Honor. Were you acquainted with Solomon Bolton, the grandfather of Martha, complainant in the cross bill? And if so, state what race of people he was or appeared to be. Also give a description of his person and complexion and appearance. I was acquainted with Saul Bolton. He was called a Melungeon. He was a small spare made man with low flat head, had a dark complexion, rather a flat nose turned up at the end. He wore his hair short and it was always inclined to curl or kink. State whether or not the father of Solomon Bolton was regarded and treated as a citizen of South Carolina or as a colored man. You will also state his church relations, to what church he belonged, and how he was received by society, so far as you were able to determine. They told me he was a very respectable citizen there. I asked if he was not a colored man, and they told me he was not, but was a Portuguese. They told me he was a member of the Baptist church there, in good standing, and was received in good society. I saw nothing to the contrary. Did you not then and since and yet know of Negro preaching? Oh, yes. When and where did Solomon Bolton claim to be a Portuguese, and how did he come to so claim? The first time I heard it was at court at Jasper, some 24, 25 years ago, as I recollected. It was not long after I came from South Carolina I was summoned to prove that he was a Negro. What do you understand by Melungin? I think it is a term applied to mixed-blooded people. How many different families in this county or adjoining counties did you know of the same race or character of people? Name them. Well, I don't know how many. Several. But the Perkins, the Goinses, Mornings, Shoemakes, menlies, and others. Hello there, I'm Brian Halpin and welcome to the time before we were white. Safe Harbor, Part 5, or the old way of being non-binary. It is worth repeating here in the strongest possible terms. Anthropologists and sociologists and genealogists alike are constantly hobbled by what should be called the Great American Problem. That problem is a fundamental belief in race and a need to define the infinite rainbow spectrum of human appearance in terms of this belief in clearly demarcated race categories. Trying to solve the so-called mystery of the Melungeons in terms of America's mostly binary race system is like describing Tex-Mex cuisine or country Western music as... Biracial or triracial. Take the Mexican rice served in restaurants all across America. Is Mexican rice a combination of Spanish European, indigenous Mexican, and African cooking traditions only? The answer is sort of, but only if we ignore that the Spanish borrowed many of their cooking traditions from Moorish Spain and the Moors themselves, with roots in North Africa, had learned rice cultivation and cookery from other Africans and from the Arabs who had brought it from Persia to North Africa. Oh, and let's not forget the even earlier introduction of rice to America by the Portuguese, who had learned how to cultivate and cook it from both Africans and other peoples living near Portuguese trading colonies on the Bay of Bengal, modern Bangladesh, during the 1500s. Country Western music is commonly seen as a simple intermingling of African and European musical traditions. And once more, this is only partly true. Country Western music would seem unthinkable today without the sound of steel and Western guitar. Yet steel guitar is a relatively recent import from the Hawaiian Islands. Western guitar borrows heavily from Mexican-Spanish guitar, which in turn finds its traditions in the Gypsy, Jewish, and Moorish communities of Spain and North Africa. What about yodeling and Western swing music? Can anyone really draw a clear line back to the Alps? To explain the prevalence of yodeling in early 20th century American country, folk, or old-time music. No, not really. The yodeling of Jimmy Rogers on his seminal early 20th century recordings bears little resemblance to Austrian traditions. In fact... During the early years of the 20th century, there was a veritable outbreak of yodeling. You could say yodeling was having a viral moment. A singer or musician could have heard yodeling from many sources, including from Hawaii. After all, anything Hawaiian was all the rage at the time. A traveler to Texas might have heard Mexican vaqueros singing son Cuestaico style. Which also involves yodeling. A visitor to northern Michigan and Minnesota might even have heard the joikin of Sami immigrants from northern Scandinavia. Does the 1930s western swing music of the legendary Bob Wills? really have any direct parallel in the ballad and folk traditions of Ireland and the British Isles? And can anyone, anywhere, actually demonstrate a clear similarity between Southern Blues and any traditional musical forms of West Africa? Maybe, just maybe, the thing which nudged both African and Northern European musical traditions into a distinctly American space was the 400-year-long influence of many other sources, including Iberian, Jewish, and especially indigenous American music. Chants. Call and response. Was the... Chicka-ching of indigenous dance the inspiration for swing? And if it was, well, the very essence of jazz is swing. These analogies are imperfect, but they serve to illustrate that matters of ethnicity are fluid and complex. Just as food and music are never just black or white traditions, people themselves are never just black or white, and complex ethnic communities are never simply biracial or tri-racial. It is said that the first known use of the term Melungeon was in 1813. The word Melungeons is claimed to have appeared in the minutes of a primitive Baptist church, then located in Scott County, Virginia. Two female church members were in apparent dispute, with one accusing the other of harboring them Melungeons. Because the original pages of these church minutes are missing, and we're forced to rely on a series of transcriptions, this earliest record is contested by some. For reasons too numerous to outline here, this writer is inclined to accept the record from the Stony Creek Baptist Church minutes as transcribed and passed down. What is beyond dispute is that, one, The term Melungeon was never used by the people often referred to by that name. As mentioned already, it was clearly intended as a nasty ethnic slur. In a society governed by a strict racial caste system, to be perceived as anything other than white carried grave social consequences. Point two. The term Melungeon began to be used openly in print between the 1840s and 1880s, almost always to refer disparagingly to mostly impoverished rural dwellers of mixed ethnicity from Virginia and Tennessee who had had the audacity to become involved in local and state politics. As the Jonesboro, Tennessee newspaper, The Whig, put it in 1840, quote, We have just learned, upon undoubtable authority, that General Combs, in his attempt to address the citizens of Sullivan County yesterday, was insulted, contradicted repeatedly, limited to one hour and a half, and most shamefully treated, and with all an effort was made to get an impudent melungeon from Washington City, a scoundrel who is half Negro and half Indian, and who has actually been speaking in Sullivan in reply to Coombs. General Combs, however, declined the honor of contending with Negroes and Indians, said he had fought against the latter, but never met them in debate. Not coincidentally, this was also a period marked by new voter suppression legislation being directed at both poor whites and free people of color. But back to the Stony Creek Baptist Church. 1813 is modern in terms of English. When a female church member was accused of harbouring them melungeons, harbouring meant pretty much exactly what it means today, the offering of a place of protection or shelter. There are other meanings, but the context of harbouring melungeons is pretty self-evident. We have a woman being accused of of giving shelter or protection to a group of people presumably considered persona non grata among the local church congregation and community. So, who needs harboring normally? In 1813, the answer could have included runaway slaves and runaway indentured servants, criminals, various free people of color, or deserters from war whether pro-independence or loyalist. Let's take runaway slaves and indentured servants first. There are almost no records inside or outside this region of people referring to slaves or runaway slaves by any specifically African tribal, linguistic or regional affiliations. In fact, erasure of tribal identity was part of the process of dehumanization of the enslaved and a way to prevent groups of slaves from using a common language, a situation which would be conducive to social cohesion and the organization of collective resistance. So if there was any solid evidence for slaves or runaway slaves in southern Appalachia continuing to call themselves by an African tribal or group name, it would be interesting news indeed for historians. White church-going people choosing to use African vocabulary would also be a big surprise. After all, the prevailing Anglophone culture barely even bothered to acknowledge the words which Scots, Welsh, or Germans used to describe themselves. Sadly, we know exactly what white people called people of color back in the day, and none of the terms were intended to be respectful. So we can probably eliminate the first category, runaway slaves, because we know what people called runaway slaves, they called them runaway slaves, or Negroes, or worse. Not Melungeons. And what about the second category of people who might need harboring? Criminals. We can also probably discount this second possibility because there was no reason to call thieves, rustlers, or murderers, melungeons. Unless, of course, there was once a very specific kind of thief, rustler, or murderer. Could melungeons have been a word used to describe another type of criminal in Southern Appalachia? Mm. Moonshiners and bootleggers? After all, distilling spirits without paying taxes had been made illegal already back in 1791. Of course, enforcing this law in mountain country was culturally and practically impossible, and since the word Melungeon shows up nowhere else outside of this region in reference to criminality, let alone bootlegging or moonshining, we can probably feel safe ruling that one out as well. This brings us to our third category of people who might have been in need of a safe harbor various free people of color. This is where our investigations begin to find some traction. Free people of colour were in most ways only nominally free. The risk of entire families being kidnapped and sold into other states as slaves was a real and present danger. Free people of colour were excluded from certain schools. Free people of colour were not allowed to testify in court against people called white Free people of colour were often forbidden from owning guns, and even dogs. Worst of all, free people of colour were eventually excluded from voting. This podcaster's own research also shows families of colour being disproportionately targeted by CSA or Confederate bushwhackers during the Civil War. Free people of colour on the move, cattle drovers migrants, people away from any familiar community, were especially vulnerable. So yes, it is not unreasonable to expect that the people being harbored by a member of the Stony Creek Baptist Church were people of color. But before we get to the fourth and final class of people who might have been in need of a safe harbor deserters from war, we should take a serious ethno-linguistic detour. Part 6. The Big Ethno-Linguistic Detour This is where we try to parse out the difference between what people get called and who they actually are. There are, in fact, Romany gypsy words which sound similar to the word Melungeon The Welsh gypsy or kale word for a donkey dealer is Molungero while the German Gypsy or Sinti word for a wine cellar is the similar-sounding Molenjero. There were certainly Romany peoples entering America since the time of Columbus, and we find early court records in British colonial America all over mentioning these so-called Egyptians. Appalachia is in fact shot through with families of European Romany ancestry. But since most Romani peoples have their own names for themselves, endonyms, it seems unlikely that any non-Roman-speaking outsiders would have been using an obscure Romani occupational word as an insult. And while certain communities were certainly suspicious of, and even downright hostile toward the Romani, most gypsies at the time were more likely to receive a cautious welcome as colorful itinerant traders and entertainers. Writers like Tim Hashaw have tried to make an etymological case for the word Melungeon being associated with early free Angolan Africans of Virginia. HaShaw claims the term is derived from mulungu, a Kimbundu word he claims must have arrived in North America via Kimbundu people from Portuguese-controlled Angola. Citing information relating to Brazilians of Angolan ancestry, he argues that this Kimbundu word would have been used in North America as well. HaShaw's sources suggest that a term once used to mean shipmate came to be used as a general term for companion, but this argument fails on multiple points in a North American context. The most obvious immediate problem is the complete absence of the word mulungu or mulungan from any record whatsoever in the two centuries between 1619 and 1812. Another problem would be the fact that the Kimbundu word is pronounced mulungu, with neither the soft g sound or end consonants of mulungin. In a lengthy article found all over the internet, Hashaw presents the opinions of Dr John Thornton and one or two others concerning the possible etymology and meaning of mulungu. During this explication, the purported source word for Melungin is found spelled three different ways in just one paragraph. Malungu, Malunga, Melungo. Hashaw simply asks us to accept that in North America, one or all of these words became elongated at some stage, while supplying no linguistic argument to support this contention. This commentator, would need to see at least a few examples of this spontaneous elongation to be convinced. Of course, as language develops, words do tend to spontaneously compress or contract. Maybe melungeons is a shortening of them all injuns, to use a term of the time. Harboring them all injuns? Who knows? This podcaster, is by no means an expert in Bantu languages, but the only one of these words I was able to find after a brief look through pre-20th century Portuguese Kimbundu dictionaries was malunga, a word apparently meaning rings, bracelets, or irons, or even musical instruments for invoking spirits. All of these meanings seem creepily relevant to the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade. But for now, we will just have to trust Hashos sources who say it meant shipmate or companion. It is certainly true that Kimbundu-speaking Mbundu people represented perhaps one in ten of all Africans transported to colonial North America prior to 1807. But as already noted above, there is simply no evidence for later free people of colour in southern Appalachia continuing to refer to themselves by any African language term. Hashaw's argument asks us to believe many more highly unlikely things. 1 that a group of free people of colour carefully maintained a cohesive ethnic identity as Mbundu or Kikongo people for 200 years, while simultaneously fighting tooth and nail through public courts to deny a connection to any such ancestry. Hashaw claims these free people of colour from Virginia to be an Angolan community speaking Kumbundu, even though free people of colour from 1600s Virginia are known to have intermarried with virtually every ethnic group under the sun within a few years. The people later called Melungeons were profoundly multi-ethnic long before spreading from Virginia into many other territories and states, including Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, North and South Carolina, Kentucky, West Virginia, Arkansas, Ohio, Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, Louisiana, and Texas, where they became even more multi-ethnic. So, point two, bearing the foregoing in mind, HaShaw would also have us believe that sundry Creek, English, Romany, Irish, Cherokee, Scottish, Saponi, German, Pamunkey, Welsh, Shawnee, and other female partners, women he and the writer Paul Heinig usually lump together under the heading White Wives, we should believe that these women became at least semi-fluent Kimbundu speakers in order to help maintain this purported Mbundu identity, handing at least some vocabulary down to their children for over the next 200 years. And all without one single clerk, judge, attorney, justice of the peace, trader, legislator, newspaper, or even a letter writer ever referring to melungeons. Not one single time in 200 years. Yet pieces of legislation, newspapers and courts were rife with references to various endo, exo, and ethonyms. We hear of Blackfeet Indians, Spanish, Black Dutch, Egyptians and Chicaners, Moors, Eboshins, Griffies, Lascars, Mulattoes, Topaz, Turks, Maligaski Indians, Jews, Mestizos, Berbers, Guinegi, Portuguese, but never Melungeon, or any other similar word. Which finally brings us to point three, we are expected to believe that for some reason, after 200 years of a complete documentary blackout, Appalachian white folks, and only those from one extremely remote and mountainous corner of West Virginia and eastern Tennessee, suddenly began to use these purported Angolan people's own word for themselves as a racial slur. Seriously. Why does the word Melungeon show up nowhere else other than Tennessee and the Virginia border with Tennessee between 1813 and the 1870s? And perhaps most of all, why is this word also conspicuously absent from the very places where Angolan Africans actually lived in seriously substantial numbers? We know that certain enslaved communities in Georgia and South Carolina were mostly descended from people brought from Angola. Many participants in the Stono Slave Rebellion of 1739 were probably from the Kingdom of Congo in northern Angola and nearby regions. They spoke not only the English of their enslavers, but also the Portuguese and Kikongo of their homeland. Yet there is no record of these people using the word Melungeon, nor any record of them being called Melungeons ever. There are many many more arguments against Hashaw's thesis and lack of historical rigor, but the simplest killer is this. Of all the many families later called Melungians, there is little compelling evidence, let alone proof, that any patriarch of any family called Melungeon actually arrived in America from Angola. For decades now, People researching their multi ethnic Melungeon roots eventually land on the web pages of people like Tim Hashell, who, as a reasonably accomplished writer and journalist, is very adept at presenting historical speculation as if it were impeccable fact based historical scholarship. Consider two core families among the people called Melungeons the Bunches and the Goines. Hashaw works so hard to tie his own Goines people back to the first Angolans to arrive in America in 1619, presumably in order to bolster his Molungu theory, that he resorts to pulling word tricks out of the bag again. This time, he connects the surname Goines to the Irish surname Gowan, and then Gowan to Gawain, and Gawin to Gruir, and Gruir to Graschier, using obvious mistranscriptions of original records which no longer exist. One of the earliest members of the Goins people in America, Myhill Gowen, is even clumsily re rendered as Michael Gowan, when it seems far more likely that this man's given name comes from the early colonial Virginian my Hill family. The simple truth is, we do not know who the progenitor of the Appalachian Goines family was. Just as we do not know the true progenitor of the Appalachian Bunch family, hard as some people try to make it be John Punch, the first enslaved person in America. But Americans will rarely Let tedious facts get in the way of a good story. Yet there are far more persuasive explanations for the origin of the term Melungeon. There are also far more persuasive reasons for Melungeon claims of Portuguese ancestry. Make no mistake, there are plenty of reasons to believe that Melungeons are connected to the Portuguese speaking African world. But these reasons are almost certainly more complicated than writers like Heinig and Hashaw have indicated with their neat biracial and tri-racial stories. Hashaw and Heinig are not alone in their efforts to create a simplified story of the Melungeons. Other researchers into the history of the Melungeons, especially the ones focused on the Portuguese element, have attempted to claim that Melungeons are largely the descendants of a few Portuguese soldiers left behind following 16th century North American expeditions led by either Hernando de Soto or Juan Pardo. While evidence for the survival of these unnamed soldiers is scant in the extreme, we are then asked to believe that this handful of men intermarried among a largely hostile indigenous population and multiplied to such an extent that they were able to maintain a Portuguese identity over the next two or three centuries. It stretches credulity to its limits to accept such a premise. De Soto had burnt, raped, murdered, and pillaged his way through the southeast of North America in 1540. The idea that the victims of this new world version of the medieval European chevauché would then welcome Portuguese knights into their communities seems absurd. If any Spanish or Portuguese soldiers did end up being left behind and alive among local tribes, it seems likely that they would have been treated as war captives. The chances of escaping death or permanent servitude let alone being allowed to marry into a tribe, would have almost certainly required a captive to go native in speech, habit and dress. That such a tiny handful of men instead managed to tread water for centuries, maintaining a clear Portuguese identity, even while surrounded by an indigenous world and culture, is not impossible. The real fault with this thesis lies in its narrow, narrow focus. There were many families called or Portuguese with roots which are clearly traceable to other sources. To believe that all Melungeons are the descendants of a dozen members of a failed Iberian exploration party just seems silly. Silly because we are expected to believe that a Portuguese maroon community somehow popped up 250 years later, ready to fully participate in Anglo-American, property-owning, and relatively literate society. Additionally, the de Soto and Pardo expeditions were overwhelmingly manned by Spaniards, not Portuguese. Why then should Melungeons overwhelmingly claim Portuguese rather than Spanish ancestry? And all of this is leaving aside the complete lack of archaeological or indigenous folkloric evidence for any Portuguese military veterans having ever lived among or alongside any indigenous peoples of the southeast. One outside linguistic possibility for the origin of the word melungin might lie in ethnic slurs which could have arrived in America with certain slave-holding Sephardic Jews, especially those with an Italian background. Eggplant, or Solanum melongena, to give it its formal Latin nomenclature, was once a common slur epithet for Africans used by Mediterranean peoples. While melanzana is the straight-up Italian word for eggplant, the Ladino or Judeo-Spanish form would be melangena. Ladino is essentially 15th century Spanish, with words mixed in from Portuguese, French, Italian, Arabic, Greek, Turkish and Hebrew. This last etymological possibility is not nearly as far-fetched as it might seem at first glance. One of the least discussed aspects of mixed-ethnic colonial and Appalachian history concerns the ubiquity of slaveholders who were themselves people of colour. Because America has so perniciously patrolled its narrow race categories, whenever slaveholders of colour are mentioned, people simply presume these people were free or formerly enslaved or indentured sub-Saharan Africans or African Americans. Even people who are well aware of the historical existence of free people of colour tend to equate the term people of colour solely with people of sub-Saharan African roots. It seems to have never occurred to writers like Paul Heinegg a man considered by many as the go-to source on the subject, that many of the people he places under the catch-all term free African Americans were in fact brown-skinned people from non-sub-Saharan African ethnic groups as well. It seems equally strange that no one has ever queried how If free people of color are almost all supposed to be the descendants of penniless, indentured African-American men and equally penniless, indentured Northern European females, how so many of them became substantial property and slaveholders within a single generation of arriving in America. We might expect one or two, or even a few, to do well for themselves in such a short time but the sheer number of free persons of color who would go on to become large property and slaveholders is remarkable. Your podcast host submits here and now that the deepest roots of many people and many families later called Melungeons, especially those who insisted on a Portuguese identity, these people's roots are to be found among the various mixed ethnic peoples of Ottoman North Africa, Portuguese West Africa, Portuguese Madagascar, and the mixed ethnic Arab and South Asian Portuguese World Trading Empire, including the Sephardic Jewish and Romani peoples of Iberia and North and West Africa, who had been forced out of Spain and Portugal during the 1500s and 1600s. These mixed ethnic Luso African and Luso Asian merchants, with Luso referring to Portugal, were adventurers, adventurers meaning capitalist speculators, and traders in commodities and slaves. To reiterate, Their number very often included the aforementioned members of the Iberian, Jewish, and Romany gypsy communities who had been expelled from Spain and Portugal. In West Africa especially, these Luso-African people were known as Lanzados. As a writer in Littell's Living Age wrote in an article about the Melungeons in March 1849, The legend of their history, which they carefully preserve, is this. A great many years ago, these mountains were settled by a society of Portuguese adventurers, men and women, who came from the longshore parts of Virginia that they might be freed from the restraints and drawbacks imposed on them by any form of government. Or consider this snippet from Alex C. Finley's History of Russellsville in Logan County, Kentucky, which is to some extent a history of Western Kentucky, published 1878. Quote, One Morris, a Portuguese, and Bird, Porty and Goines, Egyptians, were slavers. That is, they owned a vessel, which they used to kidnap Negroes from the coast of Africa and transport them to America and sell them into slavery. On one occasion, there was a fearful storm arose and drove their vessel a wreck on the coast of South Carolina. These men and families were all saved, but when they attempted to form alliances with the white people, the whites objected to their sons and daughters marrying Portuguese and Egyptians, and so these people intermarried among each other, and after living there for several years and failing to be recognized by the white people as equals, concluded to emigrate to North Carolina, where they expected to meet with a more cordial reception. But these Lanzados... Mixed ethnic merchants and slave traders of Senegambia, Angola, and elsewhere along the west coast of Africa are far from being the only people who would have been called Portuguese during colonial and frontier times. US citizens today are profoundly unaware of the number of Portuguese present in England and Anglo-America during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries and Americans are equally unaware of the sheer range and number of people who would have self-identified as Portuguese. Dutch, Spanish, and Portuguese traders had swamped English and Anglo-American ports with goods, including slaves, from their own colonies during the 1640s, a situation only partially remedied by the British Navigation Acts of the 1660s a large contingent of Cromwellian English Civil War veterans had in fact fought alongside the Portuguese in their own war of independence from the Spanish crown during the 1660s, reinforcing an already close Anglo-Portuguese military cooperation and trade ties going right back to the 1300s. In other words, the Anglo world was familiar with, and in many ways intertwined with the Portuguese world, at the exact moment the English were establishing their first proper foothold in North America. So the illegitimate slave offspring of the West African Lanzados would have also been called Portuguese? The physician to Queen Elizabeth herself, Rodrigo Lopez, was Jewish but called Portuguese. And what were the Jews of Denmark called? Portuguese. This is relevant as Danish Jews were present in the West Indies as early as 1655, and Danish neutrality during various wars between European powers allowed the Danes to prosper by trading slaves and other goods with everyone, including Anglo-America. English and Welsh Romany families, such as the Evans, Knights, and Vincents, were also called Portuguese. The Jewish settlers of Georgia, as early as 1733, often called Portuguese. American Indian families of Longshore and Tidewater, Virginia, who intermarried with Luso-Africans before migrating to Tennessee during the 19th century. Yep, they were called Portuguese. The Colonist people of Rio de Janeiro, Portuguese gypsies who left Iberia for Brazil during the 1500s and 1600s. Some worked as sailors and could be found in ports all along the North American seaboard. And yes, these people were also called Portuguese. Has anyone here ever heard of the Lascars? Lascars were Indo-Portuguese sailing crew from Portuguese colonies in India. But they were just called Portuguese. What about Peter Francisco, foundling and celebrated Revolutionary War soldier? Yeah, he was Portuguese. All of the aforegoing almost certainly explains in part why so many free people of colour in early America referred to themselves as Portuguese. The term was not randomly plucked from the air solely as a false pretense for hiding African ancestry. The term only later evolved into a quasi-legal, quasi-ethnic category used by free people of colour to assert and protect their rights. Portuguese Jews, Portuguese Romani, actual Iberian Portuguese, and the Lanzados who came from all of these people's intermarriage with the families of local West African leaders throughout the 1500s in order to further their business networks. The people called Atlantic Creoles by historian Ira Berlin. These people would have never self-identified as Black or Negro. Not in Africa, and certainly not in America with its virulently hostile color caste system. Almost every group of people in history has chosen to self-identify by their culture, community, religion, and allegiances, not by their skin color. A trader from Mali or Ghana traveling to the Middle East during the 1700s didn't announce themselves as a visitor from the land of the black people. When it comes to self-given names, diasporic groups such as the Jews and Gypsies are a special case given the historical European animus towards these communities. Many Jewish and Romany people have always maintained separate or dual identities, one for the public and one for the private sphere. This practice is also the reason that the substantial Jewish and Gypsy presence in early America has gone largely unnoticed and unremarked. But whichever name or ethnic descriptor they used in public, however dark in complexion they might be, neither Jews nor Gypsies would have ever chosen to describe themselves by skin colour or race. For such people of colour, with multiple and complex identities, it seems obvious that they would pick the least contentious part of their identity, the one best suited to the prevailing environment. In many cases, in racist America, this identity would have been Portuguese. And when these Luso-African people arrived in America, The playbook, which had served them so well in the Portuguese world, was also brought to bear in Anglo-America. Economic advantage and favorable trade terms were gained through early and judicious intermarriage with indigenous peoples, for example. When the Anglo explorers James Needham and Gabriel Arthur struck out west from colonial Virginia in 1674, they reported that, Eight days' journey down this river lives a white people who have long beards and whiskers and wear clothing, and on some of the other rivers live a hairy people. Not many years since, the Tomahitans sent 20 men laden with beaver to the white people. The white people killed 10 of them and put the other 10 in irons. The white people have a bell which is six foot, over which they ring morning and evening, and at that time a great number of people congregate together and talk he knows not what. They traveled eight days west and by south, as he guessed, and came to a town of Negroes, spacious and great, but all wooden buildings. We won't dissect these passages at length, What matters, and what the Needham and Arthur expedition made clear, is that long before any white Englishman had ever set foot in the Carolina Piedmont, southern Appalachia, or the interior of the Deep South, there were already small communities of people from all over the world. Not a few Portuguese stragglers from the De Soto expedition living in isolation, but active interconnected land, sea and river traders, Spanish, French, African Maroons, Métis and sundry denizens of the Portuguese world trading empire, including Lanzados, already interacting and almost certainly intermixing with the Yuchi, Okanichi, Shawnee, Cotaba, Waxaw, Cherokee and many other indigenous peoples. These complex, multi-ethnic communities almost certainly furnished a great number of the people who would later migrate into areas later perceived as Melungeon heartlands, in an effort to stay one step ahead of the emerging Anglo-American binary racial caste system. The evidence for these assertions isn't found in the cherry-picked Y haplogroup results of less than 10 Appalachian men, The evidence lies in looking at the origins, migrations, marriage patterns, camera lucida drawings, early photos, court transcripts, naming conventions, religious affiliations, property records, and the publicly available DNA results of over a quarter of a million Appalachians. Investigators always mention core Melungeon surnames like Bowling, Bolton, Bunch, Collins, Gibson, Goines, Minor, Mullins, Perkins, Shoemate, and all the rest. Yet they never seem to wonder why almost all of these families are also closely related to families bearing surnames like Adkins, Asher, Bland, Beninaley, Blankenship, Blevins, Brazil, Brock, Buffalo, Carrico, Castile, Combs, Diaz from the Hispanic Diaz, Delp, Driggers from Rodriguez, Ezell, Francisco, Hatfield, Justice, Kingsolver from Gonzalez, Ledbetter, McCoy, Meadors from Medaris, Nickens, Osborne, Oxendine, Rose, Scruggs, C.A. Sisk, Starnes, Wingo, Zion. The list is large and very, very conspicuous by the number of non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestant families among them. And yes, you heard right. The Hatfields and McCoys of the famous feud. We'll save that particular story... For an episode all to itself. Advocates of the American binary race paradigm never mention these deep and complex interconnected family and cultural community patterns when speaking of brown peoples such as the Melungeons. The chauvinism and bigotry of constructed whiteness is clear. If a multi-ethnic American looks more or less white, they're free to loudly proclaim their Polish, Italian, French, German, English, Scandinavian, or Irish ethnic roots, however small the percentage of such claimed ethnicity. But if a multi-ethnic American looks brown, are they encouraged to express or celebrate specific aspects of their multi-ethnic heritage? Malagasy, Iberian Jewish, Catawba, Romany, Menorcan, Igbo, Concan, Or indeed, Portuguese? Oh no, they are not. In fact, they are dismissed. Almost all of the aforementioned peoples have been erased from the mainstream white historical record of America. Descendants of such people, if they did not marry carefully, eventually becoming able to pass as white they ended up being lumped into the groups now called "triracial isolates. But before we disappear down an endless rabbit hole, let's remind ourselves of a very simple fact. The words and terms outsiders use to name people often have little or nothing to do with who or what those people actually are. Hell, Even the words people use to name themselves often have little or nothing to do with who or what they actually are. There are many people in Appalachia who were called Black Dutch. They were not black, nor were they Dutch. Italian immigrants to America were often called Guineas in days gone by. This was obviously an ethnic slur meant to equivalent dark-hued southern Italians with Africans. No one seriously believes that Sicilians were actually from Guinea. And likewise, finding the origin of a word, a word like Melungeon, does not mean that we have found the origin or ethnicity of a people or community. Just because someone was once called white trash does not prove all white ancestry nor does it make them trash. As we've already heard, to name a thing is a form of control. To name a thing is to create a new truth about that thing, whether true or not. To use a word or a name or a term in a certain way, repeatedly, actually bends reality consider the change in meaning of the word woke over just the past 20 years. So remember, when someone got called a Melungeon, someone was trying to create a meaning and a truth about certain people. But the deeper we dig and the more we learn about the people called Melungeons, the more we begin to realize that this actually isn't a story about weirdly exotic or isolated people. It's a story about the lies and myths at the heart of American identity itself. So, we've learned much about the ethnic roots of the people called Melungeons. All that's left is to try and figure out the source and meaning of the slur itself. Join us next week for the third and final part. Of no safe harbor. End of detour. Thanks for listening. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by your host, Brian Halpin. Before We Were White main theme performed by Dave McLaughlin, Rodney Lancashire, Ray Cohn, and Steph West. Visit the Before We Were White YouTube channel for bonus content related to each episode. Episode notes, resources, show transcripts, and further reading lists are available to supporters on our members page at beforewewerewhite.com. Supporters are also added to our social media forum where they can field questions pertaining to podcast episodes and much more. This show is kept on the road with the help of our friends. Leanne, Jane, Pamela, Tara, and Julie. If you would like to support us as well, please visit www.beforewewerewhite.com forward slash support. Every contribution helps, large or small. Thank you.